0: Well, I want to begin tonight by saying what I did find in and so if you read that, I'm sorry, if you didn't, then this will be new to you if you're a guest with us. I sent this out. You see Genesis 1, and the creation passage as John read it to us so well, and you expect that... Well, you, you, there are certain expectations that we have, and I want you to know that I'm not going to, or uh, this sermon is not going to take the form of a polemic against or an apologetic for one particular view of creation. And that's not due to my lack of a position, uh, or out of fear of de- dealing with um, controversial things or topics. I just don't believe, number one, that a worship service is the venue for that kind of debate. And number two, the purpose. really the purpose of this passage is not to answer the question uh, regarding length of days. And that might be new for some of you. Now, don't get me wrong, I do believe there is a correct position. Um, I believe a plain reading and a proper exegetical study will, of course, uh, lead to the position that God created the heavens and the earth and the in six literal 24 of days. And that's the majority of you held by the church historically. And I believe it holds up to the relatively recent scrutiny of the last 175 years. But I also know that there are many who disagree with you. And brothers and sisters, that's okay. Now I want you to hear me say that again. That's okay. Because the truth of the matter is, again, the point of the passage is not to argue for or against a particular particular duration or length of day. Uh, this passage is a true historic account of creation. That is a pastoral polemic against all the other creation myths. And polytheistic religions and Egyptian gods and fertility practices of Moses' day. It was meant to encourage the people of God. It was meant to encourage them and it was meant to strengthen their faith in the one true God. And we need, we need the same today. That is true for us today. We need that same encouragement. We need our faith strengthened. As much as the Israelites did In the words of Gordon Wenham, the Bible versus science debate has most regrettably sidetracked readers of Genesis 1. Instead of reading the chapter as a triumphant affirmation of the power and wisdom of God and the wonder of creation, we have been too often bogged down in attempting to squeeze Scripture into a mold of the latest scientific hypothesis, or distorting scientific facts to fit a particular interpretation. he goes on to say, when allowed to speak for itself, Genesis 1 looks beyond such religion. So before we jump jump in, I want to give you just five things to consider, five things to maybe encourage you to remember as you go into your study, if you have not studied this passage before and you're going to study it this week or maybe in the future. These are five things I want you to think about. First, don't underestimate the power God exhibited in creation. Don't underestimate that. Secondly, don't underestimate the effects of our fallen state, in regard to our understanding of a pre fallen creation. Thirdly, don't underestimate the damage that is done by accommodating and harmonizing Scripture with science, no matter how well intentioned someone might be. Fourthly, don't underestimate the damage that's done by undercutting the historic character of this passage. And finally, don't underestimate the freedom in saying, I don't understand it all, but I just trust in the plain reading of the scripture. That being said, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, in these moments, uh, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear by the power of your spirit that we may understand the truth of your word. Grant us humble and contrite spirits and keep us from all worldly wisdom. I'm weak and needy and unfit for this task, as always. This task which you've called me and I'm in need of grace and I'm in need of you to fill me with your spirit so that I might be able to do something good for you and good for your church this evening. So give me the ability to, to, communicate, with, uh, to commu- communicate clearly with fluency and firmness and grace. I ask these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, I hope your Bibles are open. I guess we're going to cover all uh, 29 verses. <laughs> um, we need to do a couple of things though, before we begin, okay? We need to, uh, first, we need to remember the context in which our passage lies. And of course, our context in verses 1 and 2. Uh, verses 1 and 2, if you remember from last week, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was coming over the face of the waters. And as we saw last week, God be- began His creative work by creating the things out of which He was going to create other things. And that's because God was alone in the beginning when the beginning began. He alone is self-existent. He alone is eternal. He alone, again, was there in the beginning, and at first, as we said, what he created was without form, and it was empty, it was in disorder. The language speaks of barrenness, it speaks of chaos, it speaks of darkness. You remember from a quote that I shared with you from John Cowan, he said it was rude, unpolished, and shapeless chaos, and confused emptiness. You'll also remember the words of Lincoln Duncan, who said this does not imply in any way that the original creation was bad. But it does remind us that the one that one of the blessings of God was the taking of the original creation and forming it into order and fullness and light. So he said there was this big cloud of subatomic and atomic particles that all together that looked like a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. And due to, its formless, or due to its formlessness and emptiness of shape, God's revelation of himself was obscured. But his spirit was already there, ready to bring form and fullness. So that God would be, in the words of Paul, clearly perceived and to be known. Secondly, we need to look at a few things within the passage as a whole. Things that I don't want us to miss as we take larger chunks. First, I want us to notice that the description of each day begins with a declaration. And God said, all of creation was brought into existence by God simply by the word of his power. What he said and what he spoke happened. We also need to notice the declarations are followed by commands or divine fias, Right? Let there be. Notice also that five of the six days include a declaration of sovereignty. We hear phrases like God called and God made and so God created. God created and then named what he created and then he sovereignly ruled over that which he created and named. Five of the six days also include uh, phrases or statements of accomplishment. And there was, and it was so, what he said he would do, he would do, and he in fact did what he said he would come. What he said would come into being came into being because he brought it into being. Five and six days also include a statement of, of approval, right? and God saw it was good because he is good. What he does is good. Because he is good, what he created was good. So at the end of each day, he takes a step back and he looks and assesses and he he pronounces that what he had created appropriately reflected his goodness. It's very important. What he created reflected his goodness. And then, of course, all seven days conclude with a statement of delineation. There was evening, there was morning, the particular day. And for the people of Israel, that makes sense, right? Because their day began at dusk, not dawn. But for us, the point isn't to identify when the day began. The point is that He created time. And finally, I want you to notice in verses three to ten that cover days one to three, they describe God giving form to what was formless. And then in verses eleven to thirty-one, that cover days three to six, we find God filling what was void. And of course, day three is included in both because the first part of the day is, crea- is, is, is he's involved in uh, forming, and the second part of the day is involved in filling. And then in verses twenty-six to thirty-one, of course, describe not only the climax of creation or the climax of the filling, but climax of creation of the full. Which, of course, is God making man in, in his image. So those are the three things we're going to look at tonight. Giving okay, form to what was formless, uh, filling what was void, and God creating man in his image. So let's begin with the first. God gave form to what was formless. Look so at day one, on the first day, God appropriately began bringing um, order out of chaos, with the creation of light. And Moses said God separated that light from darkness. And that he called the light day and then the darkness he called night. And I love how John Calvin put it. He wrote this. He said it was proper that the light by means of which the world was to be adorned with such excellent beauty should be created first. It was not, however, by faultlessness or accident that the light preceded the sun and the moon. To nothing are we more prone than to tie down the power of God to those instruments that He uses. The sun and the moon supply us with light, and according to our thinking, we say that they give light so that if they were taken away from the world, it would be impossible for light to remain But the Lord, by the very order of creation, bears witness that he holds in his hands the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun or the moon. Brothers and sisters, we are going to experience that for ourselves one day. We're going to experience that when Christ returns and when our faith becomes sight. Listen to these words of John from Revelation 22. We will see his face. And night will be no more. And we will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be our life. Well, on the second day, God took the mass of the waters and he separated them. And he separated them with an expanse. He pushed some of the waters down. He pushed some of the waters up. He created space between them. We don't have a, a really any explanation regarding the expanse. We don't know how big it was. We don't know how much water went above and where it went. What we do know is that God was involved in separating and differentiating. He separated and differentiated between heaven and earth. And sky and sea. And he... As he did on day one, when he separated light from darkness and differentiated between day and night. It's a pattern. This separating and differentiating continued on the third day. As the word gathered the water so that it would be, it would no longer cover everything, but it was separated with dry ground. And the water that he separated, he called seas, and the dry ground that he used to separate, he called earth. But the third day wasn't over at that point. We've got half a day gone by. As I mentioned a moment ago, the shift from forming to filling then began on this particular day. But this wasn't the only difference from the previous days. Please notice that there was also a difference between the let there be commands in verses 3 and 6 and then later in 14. And the uh, let the earth command in verse 11. So here in verse 11, God gave the earth, that he had created the power to produce vegetation. He not only created the plants and the trees, he created the laws of nature and the natural processes necessary for growth and reproduction to the plants and trees that he created. Now it's important that we we stress that the earth in and of itself does not have the power to produce anything. The power to produce comes from God. He was the one that gave the, the earth the ability to do so. And one of the ways, one of the ways God saw fit to remind us of this reality, again, is in the order of creation. Again, this is another quote from John Calvin. It's a little longer than I like to read, but it's kind of... <laughs> It did not happen by chance that herbs and trees were created before the sun and moon. He says, we now see indeed that the earth is quickened by the sun to enable it to bring forth its fruits. And God was not ignorant of this law of nature that he has since ordained. But in order that we might learn to refer all things to him. He did not then make use of the sun or moon. What therefore we declare God to have done by design was indispensably necessary so that we should learn from the order of creation itself that God acts through the creatures, not as if he needed external help, but because it was his pleasure. He concludes by saying, If therefore we inquire how it happened that the earth is fruitful, that the germ is produced from the seed, that the fruits come to maturity, and their various kinds are annually produced, no other cause will be found but that God has once spoken, that is, has issued His eternal decree, and that the earth and all things proceeding from it are obedient to God's command. filling of the day, or the, I'm sorry, the filling of the, of all that he created, filling of that which he formed, continued on the fourth day. And on the fourth day, it's interesting that this, uh, another interesting pattern occurs. We see what God did on the fourth day, corresponded to day one, what he does on the fifth day, corresponds to day two, and what he did, this, or, or did on the sixth day, corresponds to day three. Notice in verses fourteen and nineteen, God created the sun and the moon and the stars, and this is one of those. Uh, this is one of those. One of the days where context is, is really kind of important and a little fun because the Egyptians worship the sun, moon, and, and they follow the stars, right? like many people follow the horses. And what Moses does is pronounces not only. That the Lord God created the sun, moon, and stars, but that He did so on the fourth day, and the whole purpose was to say to worship them was foolish, because God alone was worthy to be worshipped. The pattern of filling that was established on the fourth day continues on the fifth day. Again, there's correspondence. So when He created the sea creatures and birds, He created them to fill the seas and the skies. So He created on day two. And then on the sixth day, he created the wild animals and the domesticated animals and everything that crawls on the ground to fill the dry land that he created on day three. But he not only created the animals on day six, he also created man. Man was the climax and crowning achievement of creation. I'm going to repeat that as well. Man was the climax and crowning achievement of creation. And I have four reasons why I believe that to be true. From the text. First, after the declaration of, And God said, in verse 26. Notice that Moses wrote, Let us make. Instead of, let there be. Calvin describes this as a consultation. A consultation within God. A consultation within the Godhead. He he believed God was consulting with himself. He didn't need a counselor outside of himself. Because all eternal wisdom and power resided within him. He didn't believe that there was, he was consulting with some heavenly court of angels. He goes on to say, Justice creation was spread over six days for our sake, so that our minds might more easily concentrate on God's deeds. Now, for the purpose of commending to our attention the dignity of our nature, he in taking counsel concerning the creation of man, testifies that he is about to undertake something great and wonderful. Man is, among other creatures, a preeminent specimen. That's reason one. The second reason why I said man was a climax and crowning achievement of creation... Is because in verses 24 and 25... Moses drove home, drove home the point that animals were created each according to their kind... And the stress that he says it five times... And in so doing he communicated that while there was a great deal of difference between those animals... They could be grouped together according to common features that they possessed and shared. But the goal wasn't to create biological taxonomy or a biological taxonomy. His goal was to communicate that God differentiated between the animals and man by creating man, both male and female, in his image. In other words, man was not and is not him. Man is unique. Man is, was set apart. God who was altogether and who is altogether other from his creation. Like him, man was altogether different from the animals that he had created earlier in the day. God created man in his image. Another way to put it would be man was made according to God's And the question we have to answer, of course, is, what does that mean? What does it mean when we say we were created in the image of God? Because obviously we are not divine. But we are not self-existent. We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not transcendent. We're not immutable. So in what ways do we bear His image? How are we like Him? And I believe from our passage, there are four, four things that, that describe what that means. Uh, it means He's created us with the capacity to understand or comprehend His revelation of Himself. Right? That means we're rational. It means He's created us with the capacity to exhibit His moral attributes. Like love and goodness and kindness and wisdom and justice, to name a few. That means we uh though we're limited in our imitation due to our finiteness, we're reflective. So we're rational and we're reflective. Thirdly, it means that he created us with the capacity for fellowship with him. That means we're relational. Then lastly, it means he's created us with the capacity to rule and bring order to things. That means we're responsible. Now, of course, there's more to that but from what's before us. And so we can move on in our passages ahead and, and say some other things from our passage. That's what it means to be created in Israel. And that is a reason man was the climax of the crown of the tomb. Thirdly, the third reason is found in verses 28 to 31. Moses wrote and God blessed them. And God said to them be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living creature that moves on the earth. And to that point God hadn't addressed any any of his creation. And he spoke only to man. And when he did. He spoke to man. when When he spoke to him he gave him a blessing. He blessed him. But notice that his blessing. Was filled with. Obligations. Right? Took the form of obligations. And it's important to know that man hadn't done anything to earn that blessing. He hadn't set himself apart in any way. He hadn't earned or merited the right to be blessed. God simply blessed him. Out of the kind intention of his own will. And when he did, he gave him obligations. God commanded man to procreate. God gave man the ability Through their biological makeup and the natural laws and processes of reproduction to fulfill the responsibility he gave for them to fill the earth. And it was through that filling of the earth that they would be enabled and we would be enabled to fulfill the obligation to subdue the earth and to rule over it. And notice then what he said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, Into every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. In other words, God looks at man and he says, You are my representative. You are my stewards, who are going to rule on my behalf. And it's going to be a blessing for you to fill and take care of. It's going to be work that you're going to enjoy. Fulfilling these obligations are going to be for your good. And I'm giving you everything you need to succeed. Nothing was coming This is all for you, he says. Everything I've created is for you, but not simply for you. And a little teaser for next week in chapter two. It wasn't simply for you, he says, it's so that I may dwell with you. And the money. Well, the final reason, I said, there was the climax of and crowning the achievement of creation, it's down in verse 31. God saw everything that He made, and behold, He was buried. At the end of the previous five days, children, you know this, you've heard it often. You could probably repeat it. As, if you were probably repeating it as, as Mr. John was reading, God paused at the end of each day and He looked, and He says, This, appropriately reflects my goodness, or my goodness, so it is good. And here, though, at the end of the sixth day, he looked at the work, all of it, and the completion of it, with the creation of man, and he says enthusiastically, this is good." Everything individually was good. The man dwelling in what he had created and this of their creator in fellowship. So what are our takeaways? I have seven. They're going to be brief. And I'm basically going to share these with you and then Leave them with you, and, and I told the small group leaders, you're welcome, uh, before we came out to see you. It'd be a good time to discuss some of these things. Firstly, we can mention the creative and effective nature of God's spoken and written word. You know? but His word does not return void. It will accomplish what it is meant to accomplish. Secondly, we could and can mention the pattern of separation and delineation that began on the second day or the first day and how it continues even today to work itself out as we seek to live in but separate from and different from the world. It continues today as we must ask the question, do we trust what God calls good and what he calls bad? Thirdly, we can and could and can mention the appropriate and inappropriate approaches to caring for the environment and celebrating Earth Day. We can be good stewards or we can worship the Earth. What should we do? Fourthly, we can enumerate all of the ways our culture is seeking to not only ignore, but repudiate and eradicate the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Some of those ways are more heinous. Some of them are considered more respectable. We could or can also mention how the Christian doctrine of man being created in the image of God prevails over humanistic naturalism and any other religion when it comes to seeking solutions for classism and racism and sexism and tribalism and nationalism. And sixthly, while the world stresses that we are to find our value and our worth in any number of temporal and fleeting things. Love, I want you to hear from me that your value and worth is because you've been created in the image of God. And we are, in the words of Lincoln Duncan and others, vice regents. We've been called to represent Him. We've been called to be stewards of creation, and that should comfort us, and that should encourage us, and it should humble us all at the same time. Psalm eight, while ultimately about the Lord Jesus, should reflect our attitude. I believe of those who are made in His image. David writes, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And again, ultimately about Christ, which you can hear, in that does really? Really? But unfortunately, brothers and sisters, that energy has been marred. Has been marred by sin, and as a result, we fail. We fail to fulfill our calling as we should. We don't simply fail to serve our King. We we seek to remain on the thrones of our own hearts. We seek to remain sovereign, or we seek to be sovereign and unthrone the one who is sovereign. We seek to do as we see fit. And we forsake the blessing that doing His will not only brings, but the blessing that doing His will is. Remember, the blessing is obligation. The obligations that we're given a blessing. And that's why we need to say that. We desperately need a Savior. We need Christ. We need the one who is the image of the invisible God. And it is only by grace through faith in Him that we will experience the restoration of that image in us. Gradually, in this present world, and fully and completely in the, in the world of God. then lastly, one of the ways that we can exhibit the image of God is by looking at and treating others as the image bearers they are. That means regardless of whether they look like us or not, live like us or not, act like us or not, agree with us or not, we should treat them with dignity and respect. As a matter of fact, it's when we treat those who do not look like us, do not live like us, do not act like us, do not agree with us, with dignity and respect, that we reflect the God in whose image we've been created most. And to tie it all together, I think you could say that it is, we are never more human than we love and obey God. And love our neighbor. May that be true. It's pretty.